This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Melissa Ashley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Melissa is an author, a poet and an academic. She tutors in poetry and creative writing at the University of Queensland. She has a PhD and a Master's in creative writing and a first-class honours degree in literature. Now, seriously, do you sleep much? Well, I took my time to do it. So, yes, I do. I get plenty of sleep. I often wonder when I introduce... Um, authors and they've got such great credentials and they do so much, I often reflect and think, am I doing enough? What am I doing in my own life? Melissa's first novel, The Birdman's Wife, won the 2017 Queensland Premier's Fiction Award and the 2017 Booksellers' Choice Award and was shortlisted for many other awards. Now, I want to hone in on that a little bit because I we were super excited about it at the time and you and I did a Facebook Live, didn't we? We did. Was that at the State Library? Yes, it was, the Mitchell Library where I did some wonderful research into Elizabeth Gould's life. Yeah, yeah, it was so incredible. Um, and really, for a first fiction novel, I mean, that book had so much great success. I was really lucky and... Uh, the readers' responses to the book were really wonderful for me and I feel that Elizabeth Gould has been resurrected a little bit through that process. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, uh, Melissa also has published a collection of poems titled The Hospital for Dolls as well as numerous academic papers, articles and poetry, both nationally and internationally. Melissa is originally from New Zealand and now lives in Brisbane with her partner and children. Melissa's here today to talk about her new novel. It's The Bee in the Orange Tree. Beautiful title, I've got to say. A story set in 1699 Paris. It tells the untold story of the woman who invented fairy tales. It restores a remarkable little-known woman to her rightful place in history. The Bee and the Orange Tree is a beautiful, lyrical and deeply absorbing portrait of time, a place and the power of our imagination. I mean, it is really extraordinary how you do bring history to life. Tell me, where does the seed, the idea come from when you're looking at writing a book? Um, And we can talk about both both books, The Birdsman's Wife and, of course, this book, uh, The Bee and the Orange Tree. So the seed for The Bee and the Orange Tree um, came out of research and it's actually about a decade ago that I first heard about Mary Catherine Dolnoy, so well before Elizabeth Gould. And I was in my apprenticeship, I suppose, as being a writer. I was writing, I was doing my master's degree and I was trying to write a contemporary fairy tale novel um, about a Grimm's fairy tale called The Girl Without Hands. And the novel ended up in a cupboard, but... In my journey looking into the history of fairy tales, I discovered that in France from 1690 to 1725, there was this golden age of fairy tale writing and most of the fairy tales were written by women. 
but it seems that beyond the shores of France, we only remember Charles Perrault, who wrote The Little Glass Slipper and Puss in Boots, but the women who wrote the fairy tales have been completely forgotten. And this really struck me. I could not believe that I'd never heard of them because I'm a bit of a fairy tale aficionado and I didn't know these women existed and that there was this golden age in France. And that's the sort of thing that triggers my imagination. It's my interest and my passion. And then I think that, well, you know, other readers will find this interesting as well. And so I started to look into uh, the history of, the, of these women and, and Marie Catherine Dolnoy. I want to touch on fairy tales because I grew up reading them and loving them. I particularly was addicted to the grim tales. Mm -hmm. But there seems to be a backlash around fairy tales because of violence and I guess gender misappropriation or whatever it is. But in actual fact, I and I don't know how you feel about this and you can correct me, but is it it was the time and place, wasn't it? It was about that time. So to go back and change them, I feel I have a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point to make. And I think that we have these, a little bit of a, a myth or a little bit of a popular belief that fairy tales came out of the 19th century with the Grimm brothers and also Hans Christian Andersen and yes. these male writers or collectors of fairy tales. Uh, and their fairy tales, you know, our classic fairy tales like Cinderella and Rapunzel and so forth, and they have this sort of a linear story, I suppose. And there's this idea that the fairy tales came from folk tales and from an oral tradition where um, perhaps an illiterate Mother Goose character told fairy tales to children before the fire and just kept um, perpetuating these stories throughout history, which is a lovely idea and, and, I, and I think there's some, of, some truth in that. But what I discovered with the French fairy tale writers and what is really important to me I suppose, as someone who loves looking into the history of women's forgotten stories, was that when the fairy tale became a genre, I suppose, it was actually invented and writers sat down and worked at writing these tales and, and they were women and they have been sort of pushed out of history, I suppose, because there's this idea that fairy tales weren't invented, they were recycled stories all the time. And also... Uh, the fairy tales written by the French fairy tale writers. They came out of our Greek myths, our Greek and Roman myths. They were influenced by medieval chivalric stories. There was also a fellow in France called La Fontaine who wrote fables and in the 17th century he was really popular. And also in France in the 17th century, women were making these contributions to the novel. There's a woman called Mademoiselle de Scudery and another one, Madame Lafayette, who made innovations to the form of the novel. They introduced dialogue, character description, portraits and interiority. And these were really, really popular forms for women readers in the 17th century and women were making these contributions. But as the process, I suppose, of putting the novel and its development into the canon and also fairy tales into the canon, uh, women were written out of the canon and their contributions were forgotten for complicated reasons, which we can talk about. Um, so I find that really interesting. Mm. Um, were you reading these in French or English? Are they I was they... reading them in, Fre in, 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 in English. Right. I don't speak French. Have they been translated? They were translated. Murray Catherine's fairy tales were translated um, maybe, you know, a few years after publication into English. They right. were really popular in English. They were picked yeah. up and her books were even pirated 
um, they were that popular. They were bestsellers in her lifetime. Wow, extraordinary. Okay, so tell me, how did you come to this career? I mean, it's so extraordinary. I want to go back to where you grew up and why you came to Australia. Well, I um, teach lots of writing and I always say to my um, students that writing's really about persistence Mm -hmm. and I have wanted to write for a very long time and I started out writing poetry and deciding I was a poet and I had lots, a lovely circle of poet friends in Brisbane and I met my husband who's a poet through that circle and I was just into being a bohemian poet in Brisbane in the 90s and I spent a few years trying to be a poet but my poems just got longer and longer and they ended up being big blocks of prose and then I started writing short stories and I just realised, it took me a little while, but I realised that I'm interested in fiction and and storytelling and that way I'm not economical, which is what, which is what you need to be to be a poet. And so I discovered through trying to be a poet um, that I was really interested in writing fiction, but it was a really good foundation and grounding. Uh, poetry teaches you to look at the world, you know, with great care and observation. So it was a good grounding for writing fiction, I think. We had Mem Fox in recently, I mean, amazing, Um, and she talked about poetry and the influence it's had on her work Mm. as well. I mean, I guess there's a discipline to using very little words. There is. And it teaches you how to communicate with, Mm. you know, one or two lines or one or two words even. Okay, so you grew up in New Zealand. Tell me about that. Were you a great reader? Our family moved to Australia when I was seven, so I sort of feel very Australian. Yeah. And uh, I got into reading, I think... When I was a pretty adventurous child, an outdoorsy sort of child, but I got into reading in my teens and I used to read Trixie Belden, the detective stories, and I collected them and I had, I think there must have been, I think they were written in the 50s, but they were being republished again in the 80s and I was just obsessed with Trixie Belden. I thought I looked like her and I made my friend act as Honey, her best friend, and we used to act out Trixie Belden adventures. So I love that. And then I love Sweet Valley High. I've got a really (laughs) trashy background with my reading, but so that's where it started for me. But it was when I went to university and I, was, I actually studied psychology. That was my first degree. But it was really, you know, in my early adulthood that I started to think I wanted to write and, and read more. So I, yeah. I came to reading more as I was a little bit older. Yeah, and that happens anyway, yeah. doesn't it? You know, you come, you're not going to read Trixie Belden forever, are you? <laughs> but can I tell you that you are in very good company because a lot of authors that talk to me, I mean, you know, they grew up on Goosebumps or they, yes. you know, yeah. reading is reading, isn't yeah. it? You know, we're not very precious here about, mm. um, you know, whether you're reading literary or commercial or whatever. We just, we're all readers, absolutely. So you started, you're at university and you decided then that maybe writing is for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I did, yes. Uh, and th- there began a, a very long apprenticeship yeah. uh, into becoming a published writer. It took well, some it's time. practice, isn't it? It is, it is. You know, we look back, I mean, we often talk uh, about writing and, you know, it's kind of black and white, like you can write or you can't write. But if you look at music and say musicians, I mean, it's hours and hours of practice, isn't it? I agree. I, I think writing is, and I see it in my students all the time, people come to classes or to workshops with a real range of ability and of experience and I see people who you wouldn't have thought it, who go on to become successful and other people who seem to be, in quotes, naturally very talented who don't do anything with it. And it's so it's about you falling in love with telling stories and, and also being a passionate reader because that's so much a part of becoming a writer is how much reading goes into it. So I see that all the time. It's it's really some a little fire that's burning inside you, I think, to, mm. to get in, to do the... Um, do that practice and do that apprenticeship to become well, a writer. Well, I think the execution of a novel particularly requires not just skill but it requires the idea, the creative idea, that 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 story that swirls around you, in your head forever and then I guess the skill is putting that to paper. Would that be right? Absolutely. It's definitely the idea and uh, I have an idea for a new book but it came out of and this is what happened with The Bee and the Orange Tree. So I wrote this uh, I tried to write this contemporary fairy tale set in Brisbane based on this fairy tale and I just couldn't make it work and I tried so hard and it just mm. wasn't working. The idea was flawed. And then in that process of of doing research for me, because I just love research and I can really get lost in the research, another idea bubbled up. Mm. And it's a bit of an organic process. It, it takes some time. And for me it's very much fed and nurtured by looking into the person's history and looking into the cultural um, events and milieu of the time as well. I ran into Christos Chalkos the other day okay. at an event. I, I will declare it. I have just such a crush on that guy. I love him. You know, I love his writing. I enjoy everything. And he's got a new book out called Damascus. Um, and it is a historical fiction. Um, and I'm, I'm only a third into it. Amazing storytelling. But he said to me, and you will, I think, um, understand this, is it took him five years to write, mm-hmm. he said. And when he first, I don't know how many first thousand words he'd written, he decided that it was just what he was writing was just bad history. It wasn't a story. Okay. Isn't I, that I interesting? That. Yeah. Definitely. Do you have that challenge? I had that experience with Elizabeth Gould yeah. and I was, it was my PhD project and I was like, oh, I've got three years, you know, so yeah. I'm going to learn everything I can about Elizabeth Gould and everything I can about that period of time and the the birth of zoology and ornithology. And so I just read and read and read for six months. And then my supervisor said to me, um, maybe you should start writing. And I, so I started writing the first draft and it it just sounded like I was regurgitating all the biographical history that I'd been reading. And what I had to do to stimulate my writing and my imagination was actually go on a field trip. So I went off to Tasmania and I immersed myself in the physicality of a place. And also I did some taxidermy at um, the Queensland Museum as, as well. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elizabeth had to paint her birds from stuffed taxidermied right. specimens, but it was those very material things that I did that helped to stimulate my imagination. But I just completely get that 
idea that that he has of yeah writing bad history and you can't that's the thing writing such a mysterious process and it can be you need to have patience for it patience to learn to do it but also patience when you know how to do it in the process itself because it's organic and and you're solving all these problems all the time and the problem doesn't necessarily arrive you know at your desk on Monday morning when you're you're ready to tackle it you have to be patient and wait for it to bubble up. Yeah because you're a lecturer and you're quite academic you know would you be you shaking your head but you are and then to apply that to creative writing I think that that's a, a switch isn't it it's definitely a switch and it's been our fans I've learned lots of very interesting lessons for me for my writing career writing this second book and and um getting out into the book world and getting away from the academic world it's sort of different registers that you're dealing with so absolutely, absolutely it is yeah. it is yeah when The Birdsman's Wife came out, I just want to talk about, because, you know, debut fiction, debut Australian fiction is fantastic. And you were one of the earlier ones, because I think there's a real trend now. And we've had, so, you know, we've seen the likes of um, <clears throat> so many people writing, uh, Trent Dalton, for instance. And, you know, a lot of Australian fiction at the moment, Christian White, you know, on release going to the bestseller list number one, mm. which has been, was unheard of years mm. ago. Mm-hmm. But you were one of those people. Tell me how that felt. Tell me how firstly you got published and then how it felt for that first book just to take off as it did. Uh, my book had been through um, the PhD process and so people think that I wrote a PhD about Elizabeth Gould but my PhD was writing the novel and so that was my project and um, and then I my supervisor said you know you need to send this out and I found myself an agent and then we found a firm press and that was very very exciting super uh, exciting and then they decided to publish a really beautiful hard cover edition with some of the illustrations that Elizabeth Gould did on the end plates of the book and so they, they produced this lovely book and I went through the process of it getting published, a complete novice, but it took off and, and it was an incredible experience. I feel very lucky and, um, mm. you know, very lucky to have had that experience. Because readers responded really early, didn't they? They did, yes. They did. Yeah. And also too, um, I'm going to talk about the guts that is required by a publisher to publish a book in hardcover because it doesn't happen that often either. But I really do, I remember thinking when it was first coming out in hardcover that I read that it was coming out, I thought, oh, wow, that that's scary because it's a high price point mm-hmm. and whatever. But then I think you could only have done it that way because of the end papers and because of the illustrations. It That fiction book deserved that. So I thought it was really great publishing. Mm. Did you feel the I same? I think that makes a lot of sense because I, before it was published, I had so many people saying, are you going to put some of the illustrations in the book? And I would just say, oh, you know, of course not. I mean, that's too expensive. We can't put, you mm. know, coloured plates in the book. But, yeah, we did end up getting Elizabeth's illustrations and one of her beautiful illustrations of the superb fairy wren on the front cover and that just, yeah, made it such a lovely product or just such a lovely object for readers to to engage with. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it change your life? I think it was, it sort of rescued me in a way because I, I'm really glad that I, that the book got picked up and got published because I had a couple of books that I'd written before that were in a drawer, but I'd spent a decade trying to write and publish a novel. It's a bit embarrassing to admit that. Oh, and sometimes I, I feel <laughs> I think that's the a process. bit slow because there are all these people who they do a writing course and they go away and write and, and six months later they've got an incredible manuscript and they've got this talent and, and off they go and their career starts. But I just 
beavered away and chipped away for a very long time. Uh, and I was sort of running out of stamina. And so I think if the Birdman's Wife hadn't been picked up, I might have given up because I, I gave my all to it. And I'm so passionate about it. I really did. And I made financial sacrifices for it. You know, it's it's tough. You don't... I was a PhD student. Like, I wasn't, you know, an academic on tenure or anything like that. So it's 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 a tough life financially. But um, it, it enabled me to... to um, become a writer, hopefully, you know, to have a career and, and to write the next book, mm-hmm. I think. And do you think it causes, I mean, so, you know, you relate it, it validates you as a writer, I guess. You make a little bit of money um, because, you know, I was just thinking then to not many hardcover fiction books debut at number one either. So that's another win you've got. It's another thing you've got under your belt. But that success sometimes can lead to anxiety about writing your next book, can't it? Um, yeah, perhaps a little bit. I was lucky that I had an idea. And so even before The Birdman's Wife was published, uh, there was a process where, you know, it had been published and, and we have some editing, but there was a little bit of period of time. And I remember I started researching for the next book and getting into um, Murray Catherine's life and, and printing out colour photocopies of all these things from the 17th century and putting them all around my desk, which is how my imagination works. And so I, I already had an idea and I was sort of aware that, you know, you can't, um, you, you you have to be able to compartmentalise, I think, and focus on the new project because all you have, like I have this belief now, all you have really is the book that's going on now. That's you know, you right. have to keep moving. Yeah. You, you, you have to keep writing. Yeah. Is that the advice you give your students? I do. I say that, yep. And yeah. myself too. I have to remind myself of that as well. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, there's so much to writing, isn't it? It's, it's the story. It's knowing, you know, being able to put that into a story, mm. like writing it. Mm-hmm. And then it's the discipline. Mm. It mm. is, it is. Mm. And then all the things that, you know, muck up in your head, like can I do it, can't I do it, you know, all of that stuff. I think something I've learned from the bee in the orange tree, which is really valuable and I've had a big discussion with my agent about this, is the process of drafting. And so now I do a draft and it takes six weeks to three months to do a draft. And um, when I do the draft, I'm very disciplined and I have uh, a routine that I stick to and I stick to that and I have to keep going. I have to have imposed deadlines and things to motivate myself until I come to the end. Because if I don't have that structure imposed on me, I could take a year, you know, Mm. to, to write a first draft. And so it's, and, and the thing is you can you, you write a draft and then you can go back into life and publicise the book. And, mm. and so you sort of have different energies that you use and different skills that you use, you know, depending on what part of the book you're working on, if that makes any sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, do you, because um, so many, you know, all the authors I've spoken to, two are never the same really, but is your discipline of writing like, you know, nine to five, is that how you approach it? No. No, and I have, this, I think I have a fantasy too and I've had a fantasy for a long time that, you know, you, you, I, I can write all day, but I don't write all day. I get up and write, and I've heard other writers do this as well, um, get up and sort of a bit bleary-eyed and still half asleep, make myself a coffee, still in my, you know, pyjamas, and I start writing when I'm in the middle of a book and and that's what I do and the rest of the world is blocked out and I just keep going until I'm finished. And so it could that I could do that for six hours, but I could do that for two hours. It just depends on where I'm at and how the story is bubbling away. And I have to listen to this intuition inside me uh, 
which is, I guess, the whole of me that's producing the story through the creative process. I have to listen to it and stop when it tells me to stop. And if it tells me to keep going, Mm. keep going. And that's something that it's taken me a while to learn about and to understand and to be comfortable with that I can't command and click my fingers and say, um, you know, we're going to write all of this chapter today because it still might be Mm. sorting itself out in my imagination. Mm. But you are writing every day though. I am still writing every day, yes. I turn up and I do it and I sit there and I go through But Mm. I'm just saying sometimes I guess there's... You do 500 words and sometimes yes. you do 3,000 words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I can imagine that that's the way it would work. Um, so I just want to touch on this and I'm j- touching on it for some clarity because I think you're probably the most experienced person to answer it. We've had a lot of comments on our Facebook page because a lot of books make reference to, you know, the drover's wife or somebody's partner or, or whatever and yours was the birdman's wife and, of course, you do uh, write about women in history that have been overlooked. A lot of the comments have been that that's actually a term that is sexist, Mm -hmm. that is not acknowledging um, the females as the person. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think that's a valid comment and um, that went through my mind as well when we came up with the title for the book. I think my my, um, supervisor at university came up with the idea for the title. But John Gould, Elizabeth Gould's husband, was known as the Birdman. And when he died, he actually had something like Here Lies the Birdman written mm. on his grave. Mm. And that's who and she he was thought, the wife. Yeah, and that's that's who he thought of himself as, as opposed to being a scientist or an ornithologist, he was the Birdman. It was kind of the passion that he had for birds mm. was part of his humanity, it was wrapped up into it. And so... Um, and we were, we were thinking of putting Elizabeth Gould in the title, but she was so unknown that we were like, well, we have to catch the reader's eye. Um, and and if we put Elizabeth Gould in the title, people won't know who she is. And but so I it was about th- yeah, that. I agree with that. But I also think it's a sign of the times. That's that's and what it was, and that's why you're going back to discover them. Yeah, and it was also a little bit of a play as well. So it's like she's the Birdman's wife, but she's so much more than that. So there's a little bit of a play on words there with that, which I was quite happy with. I thought it was quite clever mm. in coming up with the title mm, mm, that my I supervisor did. came up with. <laughs> he must be very happy. I hope you acknowledged him. She. Oh, she. Sorry. Gosh, that was a terrible assumption. Um, Melissa Ashley, thank you so much for coming in to chat with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hold up. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.